Hello and welcome to episode four of the Developing Strategy podcast. This week, once again, we're discussing point one on our six question framework, your external environment. In episode two, we discussed segmentation, how to segment up the environment. And in episode three, we discussed methods for evaluating the attractiveness of each segment um, for your business. This week, we're going to build on episode two and discuss some tools you can use to evaluate profitability as part of attractiveness within a market segment. Hi, Dad. How are you doing? Hi, yeah, I'm good. Um, yeah, so I'd like to just, just pick up on what you were saying about last week, because that, that's the springboard for this. So we really said that in evaluating a particular strategic opportunity, which might be like selling patisserie for a bakery or um, Hertz going into the French uh, car rental market, you have to think about a couple of factors. One is the overall attractiveness or value potential, um, which is available to everyone. Um, And the second is your chance of success in that market. And it's that first one, the overall value that's available to anyone Mm. that we want to talk about and unpick today and get a bit more rigorous about, well, how do I think about that? Um, So we could say, oh, let's go into the French market. But it's like, well, yeah, but is that worth it? And what were the three factors, do you remember, that drive overall attractiveness of some market? So attractiveness is different for charities and businesses yeah. and different let's, organisations. Let's start with but, businesses. But for yeah. businesses in particular, you're looking at size, growth and profitability within that market. Yeah. So so um, we talked about things like the farmer market could be quite profitable, particularly potentially at the moment, uh, as we're in COVID um, at the moment, COVID lockdown. Um and generally, we kind of are aware that some industries are generally more attractive. So, so those are more attractive. You want to get into that, whereas perhaps you wouldn't want to get into high street retailing right at the moment. Um, and yes, size and growth um, are both important. Um, but the other one is just how profitable a business is. And um, well, we were talking beforehand. Often that's rather difficult to find out. There's often not a lot of hard data. And even if there is hard data, say about the, the money that each company in the industry is, is earning, which is possible. Sometimes you have a small industry with a few companies in it and you can get their accounts and they're only in that business. Um, but even then, it's a bit hard to say, well, how might that evolve over time? So we'll come back a bit to thinking about how you would model, for example, the growth of an industry, which I know you've done a lot of work on, Charlie. That's very important in private <laughs> equity um, where you're working. Um, but for the moment, I want to focus on this issue of profitability. How profitable might a market be in general? What's the average profitability? So not mm. your specific profitability, because that will depend on whether you're successful or not. Like even if you go into the farmer industry, you're not going to make money if you're a high street retailer. You've got to be good at it. But but that it doesn't mean it's not a good industry. So that's that. What we're, we're I'm, I'm pushing this a bit hard because actually people get very confused about this. They think about their own profitability in an industry, but I'm asking them to think about something else. Just like, is this a good industry to be in, profit profitability wise? And by profitability, I I mean some sort of return on the investment um, that you make. So you know you might want to make a return on assets or a return on equity or return on investment ROI. Um, uh, or internal rate of return. These are all different financial metrics. We're all getting at the same idea, which is how much money do I get back for the money that I put in? So the question is, 
how do you tell that one industry is going to be really attractive like pharma and another is going to be much less attractive like, well, I've mentioned high street retailing, but another one that's been unattractive over the long run has been airlines. It's traditionally an industry which makes losses a lot of the time. So let me hand that over to you, Charlie. What do you think might be the main factors? Um, well, I may be cheating a bit in that I the, the framework we were kind of taught to use is yeah. the, the five forces framework. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So I'll come back to you and interrogate you a bit more on that in a minute then. Um, but some of you may be familiar with it a bit. A lot of you may not. So let me give you a bit of background. So... Um, there's this guy, Michael Porter, you might have heard of, who is a strategy guru uh, based at Harvard Business School and actually taught me strategy when I was an MBA there, as it happens. I didn't do very well in his class, by the way, but that's another <laughs> issue. And uh, every class we did five, five forces because he just published his book on it. So I should know about it but by now. Anyway, what he did was he was an industrial economist and that meant he looked at the economics of whole industries and he consolidated all the work of previous industrial economists to try and answer the question, what makes one industry earn a lot of money versus another industry? Now, originally, that work had been developed primarily to try and fight uh, monopolists to find out what it was they did or caused to happen that allowed them to earn so much money. So can you think of a couple of factors that might make um, make a a monopolist earn a lot of money? Um, I mean, first of all, there's just the, the lack of competition, right? Yeah. Which Nobody hammering you on price competition. Yeah, yeah, so consumers don't really have a choice. Consumers um, don't have a choice, yeah. So so those are two actually separate factors in a yeah, way, but they, okay. they obviously related. So, you know, it's something to do with customers. It's something to do with the competitors. Um, anyway, he came up with this five forces framework. And that's a bit analytical. So I try and explain it this way. I say, let's imagine you get... A whole bunch of ingredients, like let's take the airlines industry. You you bring pilots and planes and fuels and airports and staff and baggage handlers together and you invite the customers in um, and what you've created is something incredibly valuable. I mean, people actually pay a lot of money to fly. Um, you know, in the old days of flying, people would pay hundreds of thousands of pounds to travel. So it's something we really do value. But... That doesn't mean we actually have to pay for all of that value. So if you think of the value created by this, that industry, it's like a big cake. And the question is, who gets the cake? That gets cut up between different people. So that total value in a monopoly goes pretty much all to the monopolists, mm. all the excess value created. Every, you know, The customers are paying an arm and a leg. Nobody else can get any of that value. But in a very price competitive industry, there's a whole bunch of different people who can get a slice out of it. So customers can get a slice out um, two ways. And they're exactly the ways that you, you, you alluded to. One is they can not do anything. They just sit back and let competition drive prices down. Yeah. So okay. it's a very inactive customer. And just to clarify, when we're talking about value, yeah. this is not monetary value this is a sense of like how much is a flight actually worth yeah think of it in economic so terms bit, like utility okay. it's the worth to somebody okay, okay, yeah you've created something with worth but that's not quite the same as the price people are going to pay for sure. it in fact i'd argue in airlines people pay a lot less right. than the utility right. that's why they take so many flights and it's a fast-growing industry or was until recent weeks um so, yeah, so, so going back to customers, they, they actually can take a slice out of that value in two ways. One is price competition. 
The other is they could actually go to the airline and negotiate and say, well, you know, we could switch to another supplier, so why don't you give us a good price? So what do you think happens in the airlines business? Is it direct negotiation or is it price competition? No, I mean, it's pretty dis- disparate customer group, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know of a way you can go and negotiate. Maybe there's sort of... Right. I, I think the dominant thing I'm thinking of is sort of price comparison websites. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah. would be more a feature of the competition. That's the major mechanism. However, there are some customers, for example, large travel agents or large okay. companies who actually can and do go and negotiate. I That's remember point, yeah. going to a partner meeting as Boston Consulting Group partner where we negotiated with Air New Zealand to get cheap first-class tickets to Australia. Those were the days. Wow. Um, so, so it can be done, um, but it's, it's not so common. Now, can you think of other people who could somehow get a slice out of this cake? At the end of the day, whatever's left goes to the shareholders of the airline, but who else could get a slice out of the cake other than the customers? Um, I mean... Does the government get included in this? Yeah, no, Porter didn't really like that idea. So we'll come back to that. So hold that thought. Okay. Um, The suppliers, I suppose. Yes, the suppliers. So can you think of suppliers to airlines who might have quite a lot of negotiating power? Um, I mean, Airbus and Boeing. Yep, although ironically they're they're in their own little fight. So it seems that they don't exert that power. But you'd think they could because they're a dual Yeah, okay. Um, Hmm. Okay, pilots can strike. Right, when, an, when an airline's doing okay and making a bunch of money, you'll find that's the time when the pilots strike. Right. Because they can, they can cause a big loss of, of, of income. Um, the, other, the other group who can actually are airports. So Heathrow could uh, charge a hell of a lot, or in the old days anyway, Heathrow could have charged a hell of a lot for any airplane using it or any airline using it. And actually, that's why a lot of airports are either government-owned, because they want to encourage tourism and so on, then they don't overcharge, or they are regulated like um, Heathrow, and they're not allowed to charge more than a certain amount for their landing slots. So big airports have quite a lot of negotiating power, although the small ones, you know, the little rural ones that you get, they often don't, because they're kind of almost competing with each other to try and get Ryanair to come and fly into their airports. Yeah. So, but large airports, sometimes pilots... But those are those are those are suppliers. Okay. So that's that's okay. an example there. Who else? Other we've got suppliers, we've got customers. Anybody else? I mean, other airlines. Other airlines, yeah. So that's sort of the price competition that other airlines can take the value, or they can enter your space. Okay. And so then they are new entrants. So they can come in. If you're making a lot of money, new entrants can come in. Right. That was his fourth force. Then his fifth one actually was substitutes, which is, well. If, for example, um, as what has happened, you build a high-speed train link between Madrid and Barcelona, you've created a substitute. People don't have to fly anymore. That used to be Iberia's sort of cash cow, if you like, very profitable. But once that high-speed train had been introduced, it became much less uh, of a monopoly position. Uh, often what you find is that the rail travel, the rail companies don't price too high. They want to kind of share that profit with the airline. But it does, it does limit the amount which you can, you can charge your prices. So to summarise, he came up with five forces. Um, and... One of them is the one that's in a way most obvious, which is rivalry between the competitors mm. within the industry, which results in price competition. Um, the next two are sort of mirror images of each other, and that's buyer power, 
which is where you can directly negotiate. So that's the example I mentioned of BCG negotiating with Air New Zealand for cheap flights. Um, or um, suppliers like the pilots and the airports. In a way, you, they're, they're sort of two sides of, a diff- of the coin in that, that, that they're both parties in the transaction who can extract some value out of the airline or not, as the case may be. And then you've got these other two forces, which in a way are sort of outside the industry directly, but but could have an impact on it. And that's new entrants who can come in. That threat of new entrants can keep a cap on prices because you know, Ryanair knows if it just tries to charge a very high price in a route it's flying, it'll attract some competition. Um, Or substitutes, which again, uh, can come in and bite away bits of your um, market. So you have to limit your price. And this thing is very well documented by and draws on lots of industrial economists. Mm. And that creates the five forces. Okay. Um, And... Let's just let's just think about how certain impacts and features of the airline industry sort of map onto those five forces. Yeah, so good. we talked about price comparison websites earlier. Yeah. Where does that fit in? Is that competitive intensity? Yes. So it's a great point. So price comparison websites, well, a simple way of thinking about it is they enable the individual customer to shop very easily across different airlines. Okay. Therefore, they increase the level of price transparency. And because people don't differentiate that much between an airline, it increases the level of rivalry. Mm. So they enable rivalry. They are not a part of the industry in a direct sense. They are more an enabling mechanism that create a more competitive business. So which point does it fall under then? Um, they are Their introduction will increase the level of rivalry. Okay. And it's a bit like that for government. You say, well, what, 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 mm. what about government? Yeah. And basically, he's, he's trying to create a model which works for competitive marketplaces. And his answer to that was, you don't need to think of them as a sixth force, like some people do. You can think of them as either enablers of competition or stiflers of competition. Um, let me give you an example from banking. In the UK... Uh, you're allowed to use, um, and but it is required by law that all banks make ATM machines available to all of their um, competitors, which means that a small bank doesn't have a disadvantage in making its bank available to, uh, to its customers. Because wherever you go in the country, you put your card in the machine, you get your cash out, and there's no charge to you, whether you mm. bank in the Shetland Islands with, with a bank with one branch or Barclays Bank with thousands of yeah. branches. So that enables competition because it means it's easier for people to enter the market. Whereas if you allowed banks to charge you more to use their machines, which you do in some countries and when you travel over, overseas, that will limit competition because then customers will want to stick only with the big banks who can offer them the maximum mm. number of branches um, and the nat- maximum number of... Um, ATMs. So government can have an impact in the same way as price comparison websites can have an impact. If it's a very regulated industry, that might actually make it more profitable because it's a high barrier to entry, which means that it's hard for other competitors to come in. Um, So sometimes government helps increase the profitability of an industry. Sometimes it enables it to be more price competitive. Okay, great. I think that's I've definitely got the, a, a deeper understanding of, of the five forces model and hopefully the listeners do as well. I want to talk a bit about the uses of this model, how yeah. it would work in, exa- in, in, in a practical example, yeah. because 
as you said, Michael Porter is an industrial economist and his mm-hmm. job is focused on comparing industries, looking across yeah. industries. You worked as a partner at a strategy consulting group mm-hmm. and you looked at a lot of different industries as well. How would an individual business owner use the concept of five forces? Because it's all well saying, <clears throat> okay, I'm in a moderately profitable yeah. industry, but what do you do with that information and how can you actually leverage this tool? Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, and I would say... Number one, you can use it to understand why you're making money. So you should be able to look at your own business and say, wow, I'm in a kind of airlines type business. So I keep working harder and harder every year and I never make any money. So being like in a commodity um, business, let's say you're a bakery, but you're one of lots of bakeries. It's pretty hard to stand out from a crowd. Um, it's a, a fragmented business. It's, it's pretty hard to differentiate yourself. Uh, going through the five forces, you could see all the reasons why those forces are all unfavorable to you. Hmm. Um, customers can price can switch to different bakeries easily, so yep. the rivalry is high. Um, uh, perhaps suppliers aren't too much of a problem, but your employees could get a bit shirty maybe and take some money if they feel you're earning a lot. But it, it's mainly probably around price um price competition which is to do with rivalry and if the business gets too profitable you can get new entrants as well so okay. understand your own business and then that at least that maybe explains things you understand intuitively then you could use it to think about how would it look if i went into a different type of business how might the patisserie market vary from the loaf market yeah it may be that loaves are a commodity and it's very hard for me to differentiate it's very price competitive but patisserie, if I can be really good at it, it really differentiated from other patisseries. And people come to me and be loyal to me because they like my patisserie. Mm. And so I might get a bit more of a price margin because it's, it's less price competitive, sure. more on the basis of quality. So I can now begin to think about new businesses I could go into. Um, and that plays back into our point on segmentation, right? That's yeah, talking about exactly. within your current business or yeah. your current market, there are different segments and this analysis will have different results for those different segments. Exactly. So thanks for that because that's just saying, yes, that's why we did the segmentation so we can tee up patisserie right. versus loaves. Versus, you know, loaves could be brown bread versus white bread or mm. whatever. Um, and we may have a different level of attractiveness okay. and actually a different chance of success in each of those um, segments. Cool. And I, I I guess what I'm trying to get at as well is, is this a tool for creativity or is it a tool for understanding? Because mm, yeah. you've talked a lot about understanding there. Yeah. Um, and then a mm. bit of a hint of you could get creative around which segments you could go into. Is there ever a point where you look at your current industry and this lays out, okay, well, maybe we can reduce customer bargaining by this or is it just not that sort of thing? I think I think I wouldn't call it quite creativity but I guess what you can do is you can go through the five forces and spot the one that really is a problem because right. often like take the bakery example yeah your employees aren't going to be able to negotiate all your money away from you as a baker uh, your suppliers who sell you basic supplies can't so there's various areas which aren't a problem your key problem is that customers don't differentiate your product mm. having done that it doesn't tell you the answer but it does make you think well what could i do to make customers more loyal yeah. well you know that's what loyalty cards are or maybe yeah. i can make a bread that's different to other people's breads now will they copy it very quickly is there any way i can do it in a way that's unique um could i set myself up to be a slightly like I remember going to New Zealand and there was a Dutch bakery there who made Dutch bread. Um, And probably that gave him a bit of a distinctive position 
which just differentiated them a little from the other standard bakeries. So I think it can at least make you think harder. Okay. But the flash of inspiration might need to come from somewhere else. Sure. So there's that layer of understanding and just having that idea about why your industry is the way it is. Yeah. And that kind of tees up how it would change. But then there's this point on understanding different segments as well. Let's move on now to discuss some of the limitations with this model. Mm -hmm. Um, So one obvious one that comes to mind is that kind of similar to the tools we've discussed in previous previous episodes, it doesn't spit out an answer. It doesn't tell you this is what profitability would be. Um, And I guess there's not quite a sense of how you weigh those five different forces that are impacting profitability. So anything, any thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I've got a good little story on that one. So have you ever heard of the PIMS database, which tried to do uh, exactly that? I, I can't say I have. No. Well, it does exist. There is a PIMS okay. consulting company. It was an attempt by a bunch of academics working in a sort of commercial setting to try and get this to, to be a computer model. Where you say, well, give the number of competitors, the market share of those competitors, the nature of the customers, all that, score it, and we'll predict the profitability of your industry. But it just didn't really work well enough to... So it... it there's so many factors that go together and combine, it's just not possible mm. to turn it into a quantitative tool. It's more something which can explain why you think things are happening the way they are and help you think how that might evolve over time because you've now got a framework to think about it. But yeah, I always try and get as much data as I can to check these qualitative findings, but uh, you can't turn it into a, a magic model where you turn the handle and it spits out a number. Great. I think that's actually probably it for this week. Um, I don't know if we've got any time left, but is there anything else you wanted to discuss? There's a lot of resources online and and we can post some too on on Porter's Five Forces. No shortage of information about that. So I hope what we've done is given you a bit of an introduction. And if there's fuzzy points there, just, just hit the web. Great. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Um, Do come back next week. When we will start turning to thinking about other aspects of the external environment, some somewhat the political issues, the economic issues and so on that we've only briefly touched on. Great. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please, please remember to rate us as it really helps us out. And also check out our Facebook page or website at www.developingstrategy.com where you can ask questions, learn more, and find all the episodes in this series.